Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, joining me uh, remotely is the very famous Dave Wasserman. He is the house editor for the Cook Political Report, a nonpartisan polling and election forecasting group. Uh, before joining that, he worked as the house editor for another widely respected polling and elections forecasting firm, Sabato's Crystal Ball. Uh, at the Cook Political Report, uh, Dave is known for one of the nation's most prominent and recognized election forecasters. He successfully forecasted the 2016 and 2018 elections, accurately suggesting that Donald Trump may win the presidency while losing the popular vote. He is actively involved in examining house races using individual districts to key in on larger electoral trends. And he collaborates uh, with 538 to produce the groundbreaking atlas of redistricting, re redistricting uh, which models redistricting and gerrymandering scenarios for all 50 states. It's a very long bio because uh, I really want our listeners to understand how big of a deal uh, Dave actually is, both in the political media community and also especially in the past few months as the nation's eyes were all focused on the 2020 election season. So Dave, thank you so much for joining Neil and I today. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. And th thanks for all of the, uh, you know, the fluff in the introduction. <laughs> and host, hosting the interview with me is my friend Neil Reddy, who is a freshman on our team, uh, but incredibly knowledgeable in uh, elections and politics. So Neil, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tiger. All right. So to start us off, um, a little bit of a personal question. Um, for our listeners, David is actually a, a native of Montgomery, New Jersey, which is just about six miles north of Princeton. So on that note, can you kind of walk us through your path from growing up in New Jersey into reporting on politics and becoming a forecaster in elections? Yeah, I, I love this uh, question because I never get to talk about this, uh, but now with my Princeton audience, I can, I can share my backstory. Um, actually, my, my parents both taught at Rutgers, so we, we were not exactly Ivy League, but uh, I did grow up closer to Princeton, and my love of geography actually came before my love of politics. Um, when I was in elementary school, I, I loved drawing maps. And anytime I saw a map anywhere, I was just drawn to it. And I remember actually in first grade, uh, I had this habit of, um, of drawing street maps of our neighborhood. And I, I handed um, them out to my teachers because this was before Google Maps and everything. And I, I figured, you know, they need to, they need a way to find out their way around. And so, uh, Years later, I was just curious what had happened to my first grade teacher. This was like maybe a year and a half ago, I reached out to, uh, to Mrs. Barkley. And I remember she was one of my favorite teachers, but I hadn't spoken to her in, I don't know, uh, like 30 years or so. And uh, so I, I found her, I tracked her down on Facebook and I just said, you know, Mrs. Barkley, thank you. I just want to say thank you for encouraging my love of maps. Uh, you know, you you were the teacher who always thought it was cool. And uh, I, like, I waited a couple days, no reply. I figure, okay, well, maybe she's not on social media that much. But then four or five days later, I get this, this uh, message back and it's, it, there's no text. It's just a photo. And it's of the map that I had handed her 30 years ago. And she had kept it for all of these years. And I was just totally blown away. Um, so I had, I had good and encouraging uh, teachers, but, you know, I started getting curious about politics probably in, um, in sixth grade, there was this congressional race 
in New Jersey's 12th district where uh, the Republican incumbent at the time, uh, Mike Pappas had, uh, had sung a song on the wall of the house uh, you know, to uh, attack Bill Clinton during the impeachment. And then there was this Princeton plasma physics uh, physicist named Rush Holt who was running against him. And this guy was kind of a magoo. He was a very awkward politician. But there was something endearing about him to a lot of voters. And it was fascinating to be in this district and, and to see this race up close. And, uh, and it was one of the biggest upsets of the 1998 election cycle. And I think it was the one race that year that the Cook Political Report had down as likely Republican that actually went to the Democrats. And so that kind of sparked an interest in forecasting for me. And I remember I would go to the library and sit in the library for a couple hours at a time and read the Almanac of American Politics because you couldn't check it out of the reference section. And I just wanted to know who these people were and what made them tick. And for my, um, for my next birthday, I asked my parents for a subscription to the Cook Political Report because I had seen Charlie Cook and Amy Walter on, um, on C-SPAN talking about election forecasting. And then they uh, looked up how much it was a year and they refused and uh, got me a subscription to Governing Magazine instead, which I found pretty boring. So I like to think I have the last laugh uh, by having written about races for the Cook Report for the last uh, 13 years or so. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. I mean, uh, I, I, it's, it's, she knew, your, your, your teacher knew that you were going to be famous. So she kept all the, 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 the map for all those years. She knew you would play such a pivotal role in today's election forecasting community, probably. Well, or I like to think she just needed the map. Yeah. Uh, so, so maybe we can start with the most basic question, Dave, because you were talking about uh, you getting involved with Cook Political Report. Uh, what is election forecasting? That's just a very general, basic question. We, we all read things. We, we read the numbers. Uh, we, we hear those sites like 538, Cook Political Report, Crystal Ball. Uh, how does this actually work? Like, how do you and your team collect data, work together? Do you use mathematical models or statistical algorithms? Um, what is the inner workings like to actually do election forecasting? Well, uh, it's, a, it's an awesome question. And to be upfront, um, you know, our forecast uh, did not do a great job of, of predicting what would happen in the House elections in 2020. And uh, this wouldn't be an interesting field if there weren't surprises from time to time. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not discouraged anytime that, uh, that we're uh, wrong uh, so much as I am motivated to uh, try and see if we can do better the next time around. But my philosophy on forecasting is a hybrid approach. I think we are at a crossroads in uh, political journalism and forecasting between the quantitative and the qualitative side of things. For years and years, there was a more qualitative emphasis on covering elections uh, and outlets like the Cook Report and the Rothenberg Report and Sabato's Crystal Ball and others who were kind of in a, the CNN inside politics space. Uh, they were looking at, at uh, candidate quality um, and, and kind of the, the, uh, the nuances of media strategy and ads more than they were looking at spreadsheets. And then you had this gradual switch uh, 
in the last decade where outlets such as 538 and Nate Silver and The Upshot and others really um, hit the jackpot. And there was a real appetite and hunger for, uh, a, for an algorithmic approach to analyzing politics. My philosophy is that if you're only staring at spreadsheets and building models based on data, but not talking to the candidates or the consultants involved in these races, you're missing half the picture because there are aspects of elections that are unquantifiable, but are still important for understanding the dynamics of an election. Uh, but if you're only talking to the candidates and playing you know, the, the parlor game of taking your sources out to the Capitol grill, and you're not looking at the long-term trends in the data, then I think you're also missing half the picture. So I've tried my best to blend those two disciplines. And I think we've been ahead of the curve more often than we've been behind it. I guess just to quickly follow up on that, what kind of data or indicators do you collect? Uh, because a lot of people would say the polling data are often very inaccurate uh, and therefore because a lot of people don't answer the phone calls or maybe uh, there the common meme is like the suburban housewives are very enthusiastically liberal whereas the conservatives never answer the phone calls so a lot of people say the model seems to be garbage in but garbage out you, you just have a lot of data but you can you can forecast all you want but it's just really not what's actually how people feel yeah and so what actually goes into the cauldron of our forecasts is at the start of every election cycle, the most important data point is what happened in the last election. Uh, and then uh, what I try and do is evaluate, okay, how has the national mood changed? How have different demographics group, demographic groups moved since the last election? And that might give you a pretty good approximation of how a district has shifted since the last election. Now, I think the big pitfall in 2020 was as you get closer to the election, we're more reliant on district level polls and the and a lot of the polling that is not released, but is used by the parties to make spending allocation decisions on races. Well, it turns out that the more we based our uh, forecast on those polls close to the election, and the, and the more we moved away from the fundamentals uh, such as the, uh, the assumption that Trump would bring more of his voters back into the electorate, which was, I think, a pretty dominant theme of ours throughout 2019, or that, uh, or, or just that the, the you know, fundamental, uh, fundamental uh, lean of, of districts uh, in the last presidential election would be a good guide to this one. Uh, the more we got away from that, I think the less accurate our forecast became. One of the confounding things about 2020 was that the party's polls internally were pretty much in agreement. I, I think they were actually in closer alignment than they had been in 2016 or 2018. There was just a sy systemic um, you know, bias towards, towards Democrats in the, in the response rate. And, you know, I, of course, this is going to take years to unpack. It's possible that this differential response could get worse. Uh, one theory I don't buy is that there are large numbers of Trump voters who are actively misleading pollsters or, or refusing to tell pollsters that they support Trump or Republicans. I think it's more a case of 
um, Trump spent the last five years bashing the entire polling industry entirely. And so naturally his supporters are a bit more hostile to pollsters or taking a survey. I think that is part of it. And, you know, COVID and the uh, changing um, makeup of the parties in this knowledge economy versus service economy uh, is a part of it as well. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of um, explaining kind of what happened. Um, and there's kind of been a polling consensus about that, but I think something that's a little interesting is the different ways that people have gone about explaining what happened in this, this past election. And I think one of the, one of the guests we had um, a couple of weeks ago was Robert Barnes, who is a elections better and a lawyer. And he, he won a significant amount of money betting on the 2016 presidential election, kind of using the idea that primary enthusiasm would lead to a, a, a result and using that as a predictor. And also you might be familiar with Helmut Northpath of Stony Brook who predicted that Trump would win in a landslide. Obviously that was not correct, but he uses primary data as well. So what, what's your take on using primary enthusiasm to kind of guide your predictions and do you think that matters at all? I'm not a close follower of um, Mr. Barnes's work. Uh, I know that there have been times when he's attacked me and others who are in this field uh, on social media, uh, but I have not seen him make a successful bet on Democrats yet. Um, I'm pretty sure that he was adamant that Republicans would hold on to control of the House in 2018. And so I think it's kind of a broken clock situation with, uh, with him. Um, I have no doubt that there are people who have made plenty of money betting on politics. Uh, that's something that I'll, that's kind of a realm I'll never get into because I see it as a conflict of interest. I see, because I think the way he thinks about things is through very unconventional data, which is like a voter registration trends, division within political parties uh, measured by, you know, uh, how many candidates are participating in the, in the primary elections or uh, at what Neil was saying about uh, the enthusiasm for primaries and even things like he was talking about uh, the Vikings descendants in Michigan would really like Trump because that, that's the kind of personality they want to interact with or so something like that. So it seems that there's a, a faction of people like him or forecasters who use very unconventional data sets or alternative data sets uh, to, to, because they would say they're essentially saying that the conventional polling data are not the right way to look at how, how forecasts should be done. Do, do you see well, this look, challenge or? or? I, I would maybe take a, a slightly different uh, line on, on that. I, I don't think it's unconventional to look at voter registration trends. I, um, I, for one, wrote a story about how they seemed pretty positive for Trump back in, um, I think, early September when we were looking at the voter registration data in Florida and Pennsylvania and North Carolina. It was apparent that Republicans commitment to knocking on doors and a ground game even during the pandemic was paying dividends when it came to registering voters. Um, I don't think it's all that unconventional to, uh, to look at primary performance. Uh, you know, one of the best pieces, I think, one of the most prescient pieces on 2020 was written by my colleague, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics, who took a look at the primary result in Washington state, which has a top two primary and said, you know what, there's something interesting happening here. In 2018, the primary result was 
um, indicative of what would happen in November. It, it foreshadowed a Democratic wave, but this time the primary turnout is more Republican than it was in 2018. And maybe that's a sign that Democrats won't do so well uh, down ballot this time. You know, in, uh, in retrospect, I think there were some signs that, that we missed um, at the Cook Political Report. And one uh, was that, um, you know, Trump was actually the best thing going for down ballot Republicans in two, in two respects. Uh, the first is that he, in some ways, liberated a number of soft Republican voters to split their tickets because his presence at the top of the ticket meant that those voters could directly vote against Trump if they disliked Trump, but continue to vote for more conventional Republicans as a check on Biden or Democrats going too far. That was not an option that was available to those voters in 2018. And I think that dynamic did take hold very late in the 2020 cycle when it became more apparent that Biden was the favorite. The second uh, is that Trump simply drives millions of low propensity conservatives to the polls. Uh, people who would never vote or show up for, uh, you know, your average Joe congressional Republican candidate in a midterm or off-year election. And that's exactly the reason why Kevin McCarthy went down to Palm Beach uh, and is actively courting Trump to be engaged in the 2022 elections and beyond, because Republicans did reap the benefits of Trump being on the ballot and driving out people who uh, frankly, dislike both political party establishments, but dislike Democrats more. So uh, those are, I think, probably the, the, the basic dynamics that drove this election. I, I, I do not believe in trying to make sense of social media engagement as a means of predicting elections, but those, those other data points like voter registration and ticket splitting are, are important. And kind of just going off of the, the ticket splitting idea, um, I, I guess we're seeing a lot of Republicans who were beneficiaries of that double down on, on being Trump, full, full Trump, full MAGA. I think some of the Republicans who actually are in districts that voted for, for Biden voted to not certify the results of certain states. Just like off of that idea, do you think that this sort of um, Trump enthusiasm from these Republicans is an effort to kind of get those voters to be regular Republicans, like even in midterm elections, like those low propensity um, voters that you were mentioning? Yeah, you know, um, there, there was less of a divide between the swing district Republicans and the really red district Republicans than I might have expected on the objection to certification votes. You did see some Republicans from very swingy districts vote to uh, vote to object, and uh, yeah, Mike Garcia from California was kind of a notable person who voted against impeachment, um, voted to object. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say what their fortunes are going to be in 2022 without knowing what the lines look like, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but. I do think there's more political incentive than there used to be to, to play to the base. I think you mentioned in a recent article that there aren't as many, um, it isn't as big of a dominance as it was in 20, 
10 for Republicans, but it's still going to be, it, it still might be a, a huge loss there for, for Democrats and just on redistricting alone. Could you kind of go into what you're sensing from um, like the redistricting commissions across the country and yeah, Democrats got clobbered in the last round of redistricting. And part of the reason was that Republicans had a great year in 2010. It was the first Obama midterm. And so they took over a bunch of state legislatures, a bunch of governorships, and that paid off uh, for the next uh, 10 years. Now, it wasn't completely bulletproof because Democrats did take back the House in 2018. Uh, but one thing to note is that had it not been for Democratic lawsuits in a number of, of states, uh, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, that overturned the Republican-drawn boundaries in the middle of the decade, then Democrats would not be in the majority today in the House. That easily uh, netted Democrats more than six seats. So uh, this is a hugely consequential process. And it's and even tiny changes to boundaries could tip control of the House in 2022. I think there are a couple of things that make this cycle quite different from 10 years ago. And the first is that Republicans are less dominant than they were then, uh, just in terms of raw power and, and, and in preparedness. Um, Republicans lost governorships in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. There's a new commission in Michigan anyway. Uh, and Democrats now have a, uh, a full control of New York and New Mexico and Oregon. And so, you know, Republicans still on balance have the authority to redraw 188 districts to Democrats 73, but that's not as big a gap as the 219 to 44 gap that existed back in 2011. Second of all, there are more redistricting commissions in place than there were 10 years ago. And there are uh, potentially robust commissions in place in Michigan and Colorado and Virginia. Uh, there are less robust reforms in place in Ohio, um, New York, and Utah, where the legislature could potentially overrule what the commission does. And a lot of people are saying that these, co these commissions in those three states were set up to fail. Uh, the evidence so far suggests that's the case, but we'll see. Uh, then third of all, this topic has just exploded in public consciousness uh, in the last decade, mostly on the left as a reaction to Republicans building super majorities um, out, of, uh, out of a lot of states through favorable boundaries. There is a lot of um, mis- misunderstanding, I think, about this issue. It's, it's a myth that the technology to gerrymander has gotten a lot better. I think the technology to draw lines has basically been the same in the, in the last 30 years. Uh, it's, it's just, a, you know, the, fast, the software and, uh, and the processing speeds are a bit faster, but that's about it. Uh, what's really changed is that America is more geographically polarized than it was. And, uh, you know, I have my metric on Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel and all that. And, uh, um, but just to put it in simple terms, back in 1992, 38% of American voters lived in landslide counties or counties that voted for one party's presidential nominee by more than 20 points. 
uh, in 2020, that number was 58% of Americans who lived in landslide counties. And the county boundaries didn't change. This was simply a self-sorting of the electorate. And so when that's the case, it's easier than ever for uh, partisan map makers to, uh, to draw the lines in a way that, that you know, packs the other side's voters or draws fence, fences around them and tries to maximize the advantage for, for their own party. And then, um, you know, finally, uh, I, I think a, a, a big difference between um, this time and 10 years ago is that Democrats are, are better prepared financially. To, they're better prepared to sue in more places. I think Democrats will probably spend, outspend Republicans uh, two to one um, on redistricting, and that's mostly going to be spent in court. So there is, um, there is more potential for, uh, for courts to take over the process in certain states. Uh, that could maybe reduce gerrymandering a little bit, particularly because the census data is late this time because of COVID, and there's less of a time frame for legislatures to complete the process. That probably heightens the, the chance that you'll see judges take over the process from legislatures. Dave, there's so many ideas to uh, unpack. We, we talked about redistricting, and you also mentioned the uh, uh, Whole Foods Cracker Barrel example. I, I do want to go into about democratic demographic shifts a, a little bit, especially what we witnessed in the 2020 election, because you pointed out that Joe Biden won 85% of counties with Whole Foods and 32% of counties with the Cracker Barrel, so which is the widest discrepancy between those two constituencies. Uh, ever. And would you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, that analysis, what that means for the cultural polarization and races going forward? It's quite fascinating. <laughs> so uh, I was inspired back in 2011 to, uh, to do a you know, research study on which chains, retail chains, were the best predictors of where Democrats and Republicans live and vote. And I came upon those two. And uh, back in 1992, uh, using today's locations, Bill Clinton won 59% of the counties that today have a Whole Foods market and 40% of the counties that today have a, a Cracker Barrel. That was a 19-point gap. And that gap has gone up in every single election until uh, 2020, when, as you stated, the gap was 53 points. So about three times the size of the gap that existed in 1992. And it's really just a proxy for the the parties changing coalitions, but Democrats are more reliant than ever on college graduates who cluster in um, in high-income urban areas and suburbs and college towns, and Republicans are more reliant than ever on on, on blue-collar voters. And by the way, we saw in 2020 that uh, that the Hispanic vote in America is beginning to behave, behave more like um, the blue-collar white vote than it used to. Of course, it's still a long way away from that, but um, it's but the gap is shrinking um, between those two groups. And so, um, 2020, uh, yeah, a lot of people thought, well, Joe Biden, he's the patron saint of blue-collar Democrats. If anyone can bring Democrats back in Cracker Barrel country, it's Joe Biden. I never thought that was all that realistic, um, and you know, I, I thought, yes, he can recover some. But the surge for Democrats is going to be more in Whole Foods territory. And sure enough, 85% um, of Whole Foods counties. And so we don't see that trend abating. The real danger I see for Democrats moving forward is that I'm not sure a candidate other 
than Joe Biden could have performed that well in Cracker Barrel country and, and won 32% of Cracker Barrel counties. Um, I don't think Kamala Harris could have, for example. So I do not count Trump out as, as, a, as a candidate in 2024 if he chooses to run. So can we say that Trump's base or the, the Cracker Barrel voters have been permanently activated that the MAGA voters were, were the working class blue collar workers from the Midwest and th their political enthusiasm often will be directly directed to someone more from the right wing conservative base rather than someone of, of this Joe Biden type of IPO because, because now it seems that Democratic Party faces a reckoning which is are you going to try to stick with someone like Joe Biden style, Sherrod Brown style, which is, uh, you know, physically uh, liberal or but but or, or socially liberal, but fiscally conservative or, or in some other ways uh, appealing to the, the Midwest voters? Or do you want someone that's like AOC, Bernie Sanders style? That is, they're going to call us socialists anyway. So we're just going to go shift that way anyways. So, so, so don't you see that as emblematic of this uh, internal split between the Democratic Party as well? Yeah, uh, I th look, there are obviously uh, divisions in both parties, but uh, this, this widening gap between the parties, well, first of all, I don't think there are any permanent trends in politics. Um, you know, if, if Republicans four or eight years from now were to nominate Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, I don't think they could replicate the, the Trump coalition exactly. Um, I think it would look quite different. But I do think that the, the party's growing cultural divide, this Whole Foods Cracker Barrel, or however you want to put it, divide, it's like a freight train. I don't think there is anything that's on the cusp of, slow, of reversing it or, or um, slowing it down. And yet, um, you know, Republicans are in this... Um, odd situation where congressional Republicans need Trump to drive turnout. And Trump has never really had much use for the Republicans in Congress, except to except as a vehicle for, you know, passing an agenda to the extent he did. And, you know, and for giving him a, a ballot line uh, on, you know, each state's ballot. Beyond that, I, I don't I don't think Trump sees himself really as a Republican. And that's been you know, advantageous for disaffected uh, independents. On the Democratic side, for all of the talk about Democrats moving left in 2018, and certainly the most high profile victories that year were by people like AOC and the squad, uh, the reality is that Democrats continue to suck up more of the moderate business community. That's really been their growth demographic in the past four years. And in fact, uh, one of the reasons Joe Biden was really underestimated, especially when he came in fourth and fifth place in Iowa and New Hampshire, um, was that you know fundamentally the base of the the real base of the Democratic Party had not voted yet, and the base of the Democratic Party fundamentally is African American voters and um, suburban professional women, um, which by the way are not two which are not mutually exclusive groups, but that was essentially the Biden coalition. And that, that I think is the future of the Democratic Party. And to kind of shift that to like a more macro level, I think we've seen some states like Virginia and Colorado 
kind of shift like swiftly moved from at one point swing states to now likely democratic and maybe that's because of the the college educated suburbanites in, in those states but also just diversifying populations and so like on the other hand we've seen like states like south dakota which once had two democratic senators completely move away from democrats altogether um and in florida and ohio to an extent so do you see these as like permanent trends like you said or are these demographic shifts among states or is it like dependent on candidates or 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 policy what 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 do you see explaining these these different trends going on across the country geographically so i i think clearly georgia is moving in a virginia type of direction um, and this and and arizona is moving in a colorado type of direction i think they're just a few years behind but um, you know what explains why those states are moving in democrats direction but not necessarily North Carolina or Texas. Well, in the case of Texas, there is a large Hispanic vote that is not Metro. Um, that is that, as we saw in 2020, moved away from Democrats in a big way and offset the suburban major Metro gains that Democrats were making. What's different about North Carolina? It's actually not that urban a state. You know, the Atlanta Metro area makes up uh, more than half of Georgia's votes. You put the Charlotte and Research Triangle metro areas together, and they don't make up much more than 40% of North Carolina's vote. So that's a pretty big difference demographically between those two states. And North Carolina really is more small town and rural than commonly thought. So, uh, you know, I don't see a democratic path to victory in the Electoral College in the future that does not run through Georgia, to be frank with you. I think. Um, we're continuing to see Democrats um, stagnate in the upper Midwest. Yes, they lost um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin by a fraction of a point in 16, and they won it by a, you know, a point or a fraction of a point in 2020. But fundamentally, um, those states are pretty stagnant for Democrats relative to what we're seeing in the Sun Belt. So that's, it's, it's a close trade-off. And, you know, unless Texas were to really continue to move to move towards Democrats in a big way, then this will continue to be a very close fight in the Electoral College. So to kind of like resummer, like summarize what you're saying and move into a little bit of a different direction, do you think the country's electoral shifts are kind of evening out the playing field? Like you've seen some Sunbelt states that were previously red states kind of become ambiguous, purple maybe. And then you've seen states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which were once pretty strong democratic states kind of shift back to the median. So is there like an evening out going on because of this really strong polarization on the, the micro level? Or is it just a, a big blue shift that Democrats like AOC think is happening that we just need to turn out more, more progressive voters and um, we'll, we'll win all these elections? Is there a right answer there or is it just depend on the candidate what are your thoughts on this idea of like shifting um political ideology like on a national scale i'm not sure i fully grasped the first option that you put forward but since i don't since i kind of doubt the second option i'll go with the first one i think it's less of a regional divide and more of 
how urban is your state versus how rural is your state divide. And Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania are less urban states than Georgia. Um, they're certainly less urban states than, than Arizona, which is 81% urban suburban, doesn't have many rural voters to speak of. And yeah, this lifestyle divide uh, marches on. And so does the information ecosystem divide. Um, and you know that's a whole nother podcast on, on how the lines between media and punditry and reporting and, and opinion have blurred. Dave, could we actually talk a little bit more about the, the punditry as, as this phrase that you, you talked about? Because a lot of people came out of the 2020 election cycle uh, being quite disappointed at the quote unquote Beltway media, which is refers to the Washington DC Beltway, uh, the legacy media platforms. They, they think that not only do those uh, media outlets and journalists uh, do not really understand what most Americans are thinking, uh, they're also just producing content that is trying to be as polarizing as, as possible. And, and so uh, a lot of times they, they would look at someone like Nate Silver's forecast and say, if you put Trump's winning odds at uh, Biden's winning odds at 90% and it ends up being a somewhat close race, what are you talking about? There was no blue wave. Um, and that, that's why people were disappointed. They, they, they think there's a fundamental disconnect, whether it's cognitively or, or politically. Uh, from those who are doing the reporting and those who are actually uh, the vast majority of Americans. Yeah, well, I, look, I think there's a, there's a real lack of self-awareness on the part of most, or a lot of um, DC journalists, um, just about how concentrated, how geographically concentrated the media landscape has become. You know, as we've seen a hollowing out of state uh, capital bureaus and local newsrooms and a concentration of, of, uh, of news media uh, in uh, DC and, and, and in the big coastal cities, it's certainly made it less likely that your median voter personally knows a journalist or personally you know, went to school with someone who's relaying the news to them and trust is built that way. And so I think that explains why there's, there's such a trust deficit uh, right now. You know, for all of the mystique about, about Nate Silver and his models, um, you know, in my experience collaborating with 538, he's probably the most normal guy there. Um, I don't say that like as a, <laughs> to denigrate the other people who work at 538, but honestly, he's, he's, he's a great hang. <laughs> um, and and he comes from Lansing, Michigan. You know, he 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 grew up there and kind of culturally understands parts of the country that um, that you know a lot of New York Times reporters might not um, from personal experience. And I actually think that has served him well when it comes to not foreclosing possibilities that that you know uh, that other pundits. Uh, and, and data cruncher types might not think are possible. So by saying that, do you mean that most of his team are way too technical where they're just simply 
come from a certain intellectual bubble from colleges that, that are very liberal or uh, therefore disconnected from a lot of people. What, what did you exactly mean by, by the nature of a lot of those organizations? Or just that there, there could be a, a, you know, a selective bias in someone's interpretation of polling because they've only been surrounded by people who might think a certain way for most of their lives. Um, I think that that's a real bias. And, you know, at times I've probably been guilty of that myself. But one thing people might not know about me is that during normal times, I travel to 30 states a year. I'm mostly giving briefings to different trade and industry groups about what's happening in elections. But I also I, I always try and stick around for a lot of the business sessions to see what the what what people in these states are thinking about the regulatory environment or the issues that are confronting their industry um, because it, it does offer a much different perspective on politics from um, from what you see tuning into cable news look like I could tune in to to CNN or MSNBC and think about Marjorie Taylor Greene all day um, I, I just have better things to do with my time than that and there are there are actual issues that that voters are thinking about that um, that matter to their their lives that um, are not talked about on cable news. Dave, I, I guess this kind of touches on a little bit more a fundamental philosophy of your your way of looking at the world and doing election forecasting. Because uh, Nate Silver is very famous for being known as a Bayesian, and for our listeners, Bayesian means that you you go in with some kind of prior and then you update your beliefs based on all the data you see and then you eventually arrive at what they call a posterior kind of result and it's quite uh, frequently used in econometrics or statistics and he basically brought that into election forecasting. Uh, I don't know too much about you. Do, do you are you also would you consider yourself a Bayesian? Do you use a certain kind of model uh, your way of looking at the world? Uh, how would you characterize as the biggest differences between you and all the other election forecasters in, in terms of your philosophy? I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I, I took one stats class in college and got a B minus. Um, I don't have any formal statistical training whatsoever. Um, I've I've studied politics and elections for most of my life um, in a case study context, and I've tried to. I mean, I'm I'm not completely. Uh, devoid of skills. I, I taught myself Excel at an early age and I, I, have, <laughs> I have a giant spreadsheet with every congressional district and county and yeah. their relevant census data and political trend data and all that. But no, I think there, there can be a tendency to, uh, to, to over glorify the money ball kind of yeah, uh, thinking yeah, of, look, um, I think it's much more important to get a feel for for history and the relationship be between different um, areas of a state and demographic groups, and that's what serves me well on election night when I'm trying to figure out who's who's going to win. Um, because if you if you can be confident in what's happening in um, the trends from the past, I think that can that can help you more than an individual model. Um, 
but, yeah. but, but just a quick follow up on that. There seems just to be so many facts and statistics and trends and data, right? So some people say within the state, there's been, you know, those competing forces, therefore this candidate would win in, in this state or in that area, there's been that kind of historical forces where cultural forces is driving this. So um, I, I, I completely agree with your qualitative combined with quantitative approach of, of looking at the world, but it just seems to me to be very, very difficult, right? To, to combine the, the historical, cultural, political analysis, because there just seems to be so much information and, and interpretation. Yeah, and, and the other thing about it is if, you, if you're building a model that's based on, on you know, historical data, and I think this is, this is kind of the flaw in what G. Elliott Morris and some others have, have done, um, and you've, you've tried to, or, or an economic model of presidential elections. There are plenty of professors who have their, their models uh, on that basis. But we're in a much different political era than 10 or 20 or 30, certainly 50 years ago. Um, those cases might not be relevant um, in, a, in this context of hyper-polarization and um, and in an era of, you know, kind of closed information loops and so forth. So you, you've got to be able to, to reinvent how you're going about this from election to election, because politics is constantly reinventing itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I kind of want to get into one of these qualitative ideas you use a lot, which is like candidate quality in terms of these, especially these Senate races. And I think you can kind of see that with the, the runoffs we had in Georgia, especially where we kind of had two Republican candidates that were just, that were not very impressive. And on the other hand, we had um, Democratic candidates who are political novices, but actually were quite energetic and getting getting the base out. So what, what was your interpretation of candidate quality there and how it might have played a role in foreseeing what had happened in Georgia and maybe even in future elections, because that's always been a, a, a thing that Cook Political Report, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you know, the, the importance of candidate quality has gone down an awful lot um, just in the, in the past couple decades. And I don't think we can point to the, the, the Georgia Senate result necessarily as a reflection of candidate quality. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about John Ossoff being a poor fit for Georgia's sixth district in the 2017 special election. I mean, the guy didn't live in the district. He seemed like an activist who didn't have much of a resume for Congress. And uh, and Democrat and you know, voters in that district were probably looking for someone um, who was more of an authentic member of the community and, and a bit more moderate. Um, I, I do think a majority of, of the Democratic wins in Georgia are attributable to Trump not being on the ballot in the runoffs. And, you know, Democrats had extraordinarily high intensity on their side that kept through January, uh, whereas Republicans saw a slightly bigger drop off. And I think that was more of a factor, but candidate quality can certainly, you know, um, can certainly matter in a negative way. And I, I, I think Leffler was 
um, a, a bit of a, a, a one note candidate in, in her approach to trying to define Raphael Warnock. She also was easy to turn into a villain to a lot of people, uh, particularly in the Atlanta suburbs, even though she was supposedly going to save the Republican party in Northern Atlanta. And there's no doubt that Warnock uh, ran a really smart ad with the Beagle. Um, it was a really effective ad that preempted the line of attack that Leffler laid out and it wasn't even his dog. Yeah, and I think I think using those sort of traditional ways of getting voters out actually kind of was a bit of a, a shift in narrative towards the decade worth of spreadsheet crunching we've had from, from lots of elections um, people. And kind of going forward, we've got a bunch of open seats in 2022 and I guess kind of a, a blank slate for both parties and in some sense. So in terms of putting out competitive candidates for all these races, what do you think are like the, the biggest qualitative factors that need to be done in terms of um, advertising and turnout and maybe just also going back to candidate quality a little bit and like what groups are the most important in terms of um, getting, getting voters out and what demographic groups what you think will play the the biggest role in defining the results of the midterms in 2022? So, you know, first and foremost, I think you know, clearly the president's approval rating two years in is going to be the um, be a, a very big driver of what happens in a midterm election. Um, you know, there are some reasons to to think this, this midterm is going to be quite different from, uh, from Obama's uh, first term midterm uh, you know one one big way one big reason is that the democrats have very very tiny majorities both in the presidential race and and in congress and there's probably less ability for for democrats to legislate to the left uh, they're not going to be passing sweeping legislation like the aca that generated the kind of backlash and and uh, and ads that were that propelled Republicans in 2010. Uh, at the same time, you know, Trump was also an important Democratic driver of turnout, and the fact he's no longer in office kind of calls into question how active the Democratic electorate will be. But you know, Trump was also very effective in communicating with voters on the margins of political engagement, and as we saw in 2018, um, you know, the the electorate did get more college educated in a midterm, and so. That dynamic is a bit different from what we saw during the Obama years. Just the, you know, uh, there's been a, a pro-democratic shift in the highest turnout uh, strata, if if that makes sense, uh, and and that might offset some, or mitigate some of the typical backlash against a pres a first-term president in in their midterm. So. I think it's going to be highly competitive for both the House and Senate. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Republicans are going to take back the House. But when you add up the tally of this of um, who has control from state to state and redistricting, I do think the House starts out as a toss up before you even get to the political environment and the candidate quality. 
Dave, I wanted to ask you a, a very broad question, I guess, about two competing narratives that I've heard, one pro-Democrat, one pro-Republican. I know we don't have too much time left, so it's probably a broad question. The pro-Republican uh, argument is that there's a very pessimistic outlook for the Democratic Party because um, Biden would not be able to legislate too much. It will, he will be seen as more as somewhat of a lame duck president because his one term, uh, the majority is not that big. Uh, so he won't be able to do too much the Trump slash MAGA wing will continue to slam him. They'll continue to drive the nation further. And what will happen is that uh, the, the Republicans will have a big landslide in 2022. And in 2024, Kamala Harris could easily be wiped out by someone like Josh Hawley or like a populist right wing who, who can reignite the, the MAGA base. So that's the pro-Republican narrative that I've heard. The pro-Democrat argument is that look at what happened in the Capitol riots. That's horrible. Uh, and, and, the, and the Republican Party has no choice but to abandon Trump right now. And they have to, the Republican Party is basically in a split between uh, do they want to save Trump's base or do they actually want to recorrect the course uh, to go back to the bread and butter, uh, you know, Bush, McCain kind of republicanism. And then the, right now, it's also the perfect time for the Democratic Party to strike. So we see Nancy Pelosi taking initiative in the impeachment trial, and that will end a lot of the chances for Trump and his associates, uh, their chances in 2022 and 2024. So uh, both seem to be predominating narratives in, in today's discourse. Uh, do you like either of them? Uh, uh, do you see one as being more possible than the other? Well, I think the second narrative is a very DC bubble fallacy. The notion that there's any chance for the Republican party to go back to the pre-Trump party. Um, no, it's gone. And there's a new name for most of the people who who would want to go back to that party, um, you know, paid CNN or MSNBC contributors with an R next to their name or, uh, or Democrats, you know, that, that party, it's left the station. So the, the one caveat I would make to the first narrative is that I don't think Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or, or, you know, another Republican senator, particularly someone from an Ivy League background, is likely to claim that populist mantle um, with nearly the effectiveness that Trump did. I think it's much more likely to be someone with the last name Trump, whether it is a comeback or whether it is one of the Lanka. children. Oh, yeah. 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 I see. Because yeah. the Republican Party is now stamped with that brand. So, so you're saying both narratives seem to be, it's very hard to say basically uh, at this point. No, I would say that I would agree more with the first narrative with the caveat that- I see. That the Trump brand has become so dominant in, in the Republican um, party that I don't, I don't think has much success without some direct tie to that brand. Awesome. Uh, I, I know you have to go in, in a couple minutes. So uh, just two last quick questions. One is, since we were talking about, uh, you say you look at historical trends and culture and politics, uh, what stage do you think this country is really at right now? I mean, look, look at what's else going on right now. Uh, the political polarization, we see recently game stocks, you know, stock price been driven up by people who hate the establishment and hate the elites. Uh, we, we see a widespread distrust about uh, um, expert class and uh, people simply don't think 
any of the experts know the answer anymore. So uh, it, does that make things much harder to predict and forecast, uh, much more narrative driven and journalism also become more narrative driven? Uh, where do you see this, this where we're all headed? Uh, are you pessimistic slash optimistic? Yeah, I'm probably more on the pessimistic side of things. Uh, Great, this wonderful. Close in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I keep going back to, uh, there was a great line in, in, uh, in Nate Silver's um, The Signal and the Noise about how any time throughout history there have been big advances, technological advances in the way that information is disseminated. It has, you know, the world has had a very hard time um, maintaining peace in those situations that whenever it's become easier for, um, for charlatans to disseminate untruths uh, that it inevitably leads to, to violence. Um, you know, I, I don't think the violence that we saw on January 6th has caused a course correction for the Republican Party. Uh, I think we saw in the aftermath of this election just how fragile, uh, you know, we're, we're hanging on to our, our, uh, our democratic institutions by a thread. What if there were less scrupulous secretaries of state than Brad Raffensperger in states? I don't think it's possible for someone um, of, you know, Brad Raffensperger's, um, uh, you know, cr uh, credibility or, or orientation to get through a Republican primary if, you know, after they have taken that stance. And that makes things very, um, very dicey in the future. Uh, I, I don't see that going away. I mean, certainly deplatforming some of the loudest figures goes some of the way towards, um, towards you know, preventing um, falsehoods from, from taking root, but it, it goes a fraction of the way in my view. And, and there's still, plenty of avenues for, um, for people to, to cast doubt on our democratic institutions and, and, uh, and with bad faith. And so to kind of wrap things up here um, at the podcast, we kind of do a, we ask for our guests punchline every episode, which is basically your hot take on, on anything that's in your scope, whether it be electoral democracy to polling, demographic shifts, gerrymandering, I guess the upcoming midterms in a couple, in a year and a half. So what's your, what's your punchline going forward as we go into an un, uncertain um, stage of our electoral democracy? What's that? I think it, something that's been clear to those of us who've been covering congressional races closely the past couple of years and, and all races really, is that probably the the biggest security threat facing the country is the epidemic of disinformation that we're we're drowning in. I think that's finally become apparent um, the the past stretch after this election. But if if there's there's um, kind of one interesting um, evolution in a in a 
positive direction, it might be that politics is slightly depolarizing around race. And we saw the gap between, um, between non-white voters and white voters, if anything, shrink a bit uh, between 2016 and, and 2020. Obviously, it was still quite wide. But I guess the punchline would be it's hazardous to predict a permanent majority or, or a durable trend in American politics. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we uh, could, could have a, a political alignment 20 years from now that we just did not see coming today. And that's what keeps this such, um, such an interesting field to be in. Dave, thanks so much for joining you and me today. How can people follow more about your work and then uh, get into uh, reading more? Well, thanks for having me. And cookpolitical.com is where I write most of, um, of my stuff. A lot of it's available for free, some of it's not, but there are monthly subscription options. And uh, hopefully not as expensive as uh, it used <laughs> to be when you were uh, a kid. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there weren't monthly options back then, but, <laughs> but no, I, I, um, I also try and write on the side, uh, for NBC news occasionally, but yeah, I, I really enjoy, uh, you know, the, the, the give and take on, on Twitter for sure. And yes, and I'll be sharing a lot of my maps over the course of the next year. So I look forward to provoking conversation among Thank all the geography nerds out there. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And, and if you want to follow Dave on Twitter, uh, it's at ReedDistrict, uh, Dave Wasserman. So uh, Dave, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Neil, how was your first interview? Uh, this is our second interview together. Thanks so much for joining me today as well. Uh, uh, you can follow us on policypunchline.com and uh, visit us um, on our YouTube channel, iTunes, Spotify. You can watch this video. Uh, thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.